name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, your good and gracious will is to keep and preserve us in the true faith. Your good and gracious will is done without our prayer and does not depend upon us. For this, we give you thanks. Forgive us for not trusting that you promised to preserve us in Christ. Break and hinder every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow your name or let your kingdom come. Strengthen and keep us firm in your word and faith until we die. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And that prayer for the week is a catechism prayer on the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer. But we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. Thy will be done is not kesara, sara, whatever will be, will be. God's good and gracious will is what we have in the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, where we learn and know specifically what it is that is God's will. So that's why the Catechism says, God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. Now, we also learn from the Word of God what the will of devil, world, and sinful nature is more than anything else to destroy faith in Christ, more than anything else to injure our relationship to Christ. So the Catechism goes on to say of the sinful flesh, of the devil and the world, they do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come. But God's will is when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. This is his good and gracious will. Now the last section there, to be preserved in God's word and faith until we die, may mean that suffering or hardship of some sort is far better for us, for the preservation of each one of us in his word and faith until we die. So, that means that what our flesh chafes against may be God's will to strip us of self-reliance so that we rely upon him. Remember this, in the circumstances of your life, good times and bad times, times of joy and times of suffering or hardship, there are two wills at work. The devil's will is to destroy your faith in Christ. And he may use prosperity to do that tempting you to make an idol out of the things that you've accomplished or achieved. He may use sickness to do that or some other hardship where you are on the precipice of despair. There is no hope for us. He doesn't care. 
If you can steal or destroy your faith in Christ by making you rich, he's more than happy to do so. If, on the other hand, he can destroy you by thrusting you into suffering and hardship, he's more than happy to do that. Remember this, the devil doesn't love you, nor does the world, nor does your sinful flesh. So when we pray, thy will be done, it rests upon the certainty that above all things, God wishes to preserve us in his word and faith until we die. All right, so that's the third petition uh, for, the, for the week from the Lord's Prayer, chosen because of the parable of the prodigal son and God's will to preserve and keep both of those. You can look at both of those boys. The one of them lost everything, and it was God's will in the loss of everything to destroy his faith. And the older boy didn't lose everything, everything he had from the father's house, but it was God's will to thrust him into self-righteousness and pride. Uh, the devil's will. Thank you. Just checking to see if you're listening. It's the devil's will through that to destroy his faith. Okay. So, and then from earlier on in the same chapter from Luke is the verse for the week. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. The Psalm of the Week is number 55, a traditional for this third week after Trinity. And we continue to pray through uh, portions of the Gospel of Luke and excerpts from the Minor Prophets. Uh, this week, Habakkuk. I love Habakkuk. I love Habakkuk because I think that name sounds so cool. That's not the real reason. Um, it has the passage in it, the just shall live by faith. And it seemed rather cruel. Luther says that Habakkuk, you know, lamenting over what to, wanting God to do something about the apostasy of, apostasy of Judah. He says, I will. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. They're going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And won't that be great? And, of course, Habakkuk is, that's not the, what I had in mind. But he's instructed, according to Luther, to put the promise made to Abraham on a placard. Either the promise is true, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and in you and your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's either true or it's cruel punishment. As they're being carried off, many of them in chains into captivity, you got the promise of the gospel. But that's what he was called to believe. So the phrase, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. We're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And they're called to, in the midst of being stripped of everything, to trust in that promise. So that's, that's Habakkuk. And it fits well also this week with the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. Because in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple... It would have been the devil's will to destroy faith. And in the midst of that same event, God's will to preserve faith and to preserve a remnant. Okay, so that's a little bit about the congregation at prayer for the week. All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. And from here on out, as we bring the um, uh, St. Peter option to a close, we're really going to be 
just talking about the epistles of Peter and the seminary training of Peter and the hardships that he went through. This particular section is called Peter's Christology of Vocation and Earthly Pilgrimage. Uh, At the heart of vocation, as we have encouraged you to think about, is the call of the gospel of God's love in Christ, of God's undeserved forgiveness and mercy. That shapes our station in life on our earthly pilgrimage. It's found under the third article of the Creed. I cannot, by my own strength, believe, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. So the call to faith by the gospel of God's undeserved love is that which shapes uh, our understanding of vocation. So the gift of forgiveness in Christ is the basis for the fervor of Peter's confession, even when he may not have realized the extent to which the forgiveness in Christ for him as an unworthy sinner was central to his calling as a Christian and an apostle. So here in Matthew 16, you have Peter's famous confession. When Jesus came, this is verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So this is the, the first Pew Research public opinion poll, I guess. Who do men say that I am? We're in the middle of Jesus' ministry, and Caesarea Philippi is northeast of the Sea of Galilee. So this very much is like a retreat for Jesus and the disciples. The answers given are instructive, and I, I want you to take a look. And see, ask yourself the question, why did they think these people? Some, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. Now notice, what do you know about John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets? What are they all? They're all... Preachers, but what kind? Rick Warren is a preacher, too. Well, they're not all apostles. Elijah and Jeremiah are not apostles. Well, in terms of their position, where are they found? Where are they from? The Old Testament. They're they're the Bible. They're prophets from the Bible. Elijah's in the Bible. Jeremiah's in the Bible. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets who is the forerunner of the Christ. Some say Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, or one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Nobody said, some say Rick Warren. Some say Oral Roberts. Some say some politician of the day. No? And now the question, why not? Why did they identify some of the prophets? The preaching is the same. When Jesus preaches, he sounds like Jeremiah. 
He sounds like Elijah. He sounds like John the Baptist. Or he sounds like any number, Habakkuk, any number of the Old Testament prophets. That is the significance. So there's a continuity of message, of teaching, of confession. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now remember, he's talking to the twelve. And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Is that true? Yeah. So he is a prophet, but he is more than a prophet. He is the Christ, the anointed one. And Peter rightly identifies him as the son of the living God. How did Peter come upon that confession of faith? Holy Spirit Spirit through what? Through the word of God. That Jesus had preached and that was consistent with the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now there's a lot of things packed in there. This is actually where Jesus specifically names him Peter. We sometimes refer to him as Simon Peter, but most often we know him as Peter because that's the name that Jesus gave to him. Jesus was always doing that with names, fooling around with names, changing names. Peter in the masculine, Petros, and Peter in the feminine, Petra, both mean rock. What Peter confessed was the Petra, the confession, in the feminine case, but he's a man, he's given the name Petros, because he made the good Petra, the good confession, which is the rock of our salvation. Now, I find something interesting on this, and, and um, the, the trouble that we have had since before the 19th of June to the present is Pastor Christensen and I have hardly, we're like ships in the night, you know, passing. So uh, we don't get to, we, we haven't had the, as much opportunity as we'd like to confer on things. But I am of the strong opinion that when Jesus calls Peter Barjona in this this text, he is doing a play on words with uh, Peter's father's actual name, which was John. John 21, he calls Peter by his actual name, son of John. You know, do you love me more than these? But here he uses Jonah, the prophet. It's a little turn of phrase. Because what was characteristic of Jonah, the prophet, his message? Among other things. You think about Jesus. Don't, please don't all speak at once. It's causing me great confusion. Jonah, when you hear of Jonah, what do you think about? 
the great fish, he's thrown overboard and he's swallowed up, and then what? Three days later, he's vomited up on dry ground. Okay? Luther says he died, and then he rose from the dead on the third day as the fish vomits him out. Randy, welcome back from Nigeria. Thank you. I think in this context of what Jonah was sent to do, and he resisted because he didn't want Nineveh to be saved. That's true. The thing here is on the basis of Peter's confession, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, that he calls him Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Because what is the heart of Jonah's message, the death and resurrection of Jesus, of which the whale swallowing is a sign? So I submit to you that the reason he calls him Bar-Jonah is something Peter doesn't even realize. At the heart of this confession is that Jesus is not only the Christ, the son of the living God, but his death and resurrection, the sign of Jonah, is the heart of that confession. And Peter doesn't realize that because later on here, then, he wants to deny the death of Christ. Look at what happens. From that time, Jesus began, this is verse 21, to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. That's pretty plain. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, May God be merciful to you. God forbid this should not happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to him, Get behind me, Antichrist. No, it's actually Satan, but both result in the same thing. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. So he denies the death and resurrection, even though he made the good confession. Now, this is significant in terms of our understanding of vocation. I thank God I never have the slightest bit of doubt or any struggle with sin. <clears throat> what is that? If I were to say that. It's a lie. Just say it what it is. It's a lie. In the Apostle Peter, when he confesses this, does he have faith in Jesus? Does he? Absolutely. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It's a confession of faith. When he denies the death and resurrection of the Christ whom he confessed, is he speaking from unbelief? So which is it? Is he a believer or an unbeliever? He's both, okay? So the old nature and the new nature are in one person. When we talk about... Um, we had to learn all these Latin phrases at the seminary, like simul justus et peccator, at the same time justified, and then a sinner. But there's more to it than that. It also means at the same time you're a believer and an unbeliever. Okay? You're a faithful confessor of the truth, and you're a heretic. When Peter is denying the death and resurrection of Jesus here, that's heresy. No wonder... Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So I've got four points under this. Number one, he believed and confessed the truth. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, verse 16. Number two, the death and resurrection of Christ was at the heart of this confession. 
Now that's true whether you buy into the idea that Jesus called him son of Jonah for that reason or not. Jesus explicitly fills up that confession with the suffering and death of Christ. It is at the heart of this confession and the foundation for the church and her ministry. So when Peter calls, uh, when Jesus calls Peter, Peter, Petros, but then upon this rock, Petra, he's not talking about the person of Peter. He's talking about the confession of the truth that Peter made. Three, Peter believed and confessed, yet he denied the centrality of the cross for the very salvation he believed in. What an irony. The very salvation that he believed in from Jesus, and he had heard it, and he had been recipient of that, he denies in saying, God forbid that you should go to the cross. That kind of baffling, bewildering confusion ought to be of great comfort to us. If Simon Peter, who is a disciple of Jesus and went on to be an apostle and had been with Jesus for this period of time, is so confused and frankly wrong, how much more should we not understand that we often find ourselves in the same predicament? Which means that for a Christian in our vocation, nothing, absolutely nothing matters more than the word of God, which is the truth and counters the false ideas or opinions of human reason. So number four, and we didn't, he says, if anyone deny, desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. One of the purposes of that cross bearing, you know, what, is cross, what does a cross lead to? Death. It always means death. So the taking up of our cross and following Jesus is how, in part, through the word of God, the old nature, including the way we think, is crucified and put to death. So that Christian knowledge, the knowledge that flows from faith, is more than head knowledge. You know, we could all pass a test on biblical doctrine, but when push comes to shove and we're in the throes of our own struggle with sin or the sins of others, whew, it all goes out the window, out the window. So this idea of Jesus catechizes them to understand that dying to self, taking up the cross, and suffering also for the salvation of others is central to our vocation as Christians in our lives and in the ministry. So it's not just, it's not just pastors or the apostles, but it is also each one of us in our station and calling in life. So to learn to believe. This is, this is in the Christian questions and answers. You know, why did Christ die for you? You know, why do you wish to go to the sacrament? That I may learn to believe that Christ, out of great love, died for me, and also to learn from him to love God and my neighbor who hates me, who persecutes me, and so forth. That is an ever-going, lifelong process to learn to believe in Christ's love so much that you live in his love and forgiveness toward others. Okay, uh, Cindy.
But it reminds me of how, as Christians, myself included, top of the list, Hold I, the can, microphone I can do one thing and want to do good, but on the very back end, and I'm tired and I'm crabby, and all of a sudden things come out of my mouth that are not Christian and are very hurtful. So what you're explaining there can be is reconciling those two That's right. dichotomies of the life of a Christian That's in right. your vocation. That's right. And don't, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that then we should rejoice in our sinful failings or weaknesses. Uh, but it is what Paul talks about. If he, as an apostle, after his conversion and long into his apostolic work, could say, the good that I would, I don't do, and that which I would do is the, or would not do is the very thing that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. He deplores that wretched condition. But that's a salutary deploring. Because when we deplore our wretched condition, we're less likely to be embittered against others who struggle just as we do, or maybe in different ways. I thank God I don't struggle like he does or she does or what have you. Yeah. It, gives you more compassion it does. There's compassion and empathy associated with Christian vocation toward the enemies of the faith. So I'm absolutely convinced that in the case of the Apostle Paul, the fact that he had been a former persecutor of the church and was filled with that kind of vile, putrid hatred of Jesus and the gospel served him well to be able to preach that gospel faithfully to others who had been and are just like he was. Similarly with Peter. Peter's internal conflicts, which we'll see as we go on, while not pleasant, were the context in which Jesus ministered forgiveness to him and enabled him then to be an empathetic and compassionate preacher of the gospel to others and also to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Okay, so Luke 22 is the next uh, section I want you to look at. Luke 22, uh, beginning at verse 31. Wallace has a question, Pastor Gelbach. Wally, right here, right there. Uh, when Israel was being chased around land to land and they crossed rivers, their enemies, they built rocks, right? They built, they built rocks for witness rocks for, uh, for, the, for, the, God, for the God that they uh, believed in. Now, isn't this the same or similar to uh, Peter being the witness rock to the church and to the world? Sure, I think you can, I think you can say that. These memorial stones and memor that were erected were memorials to the Lord's faithfulness to them in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And, and in that area when Jesus declared that to him, wasn't that in Petra, a big rocky area where waterfalls were and so forth, where he was... Well, this is Caesarea Philippi, so I'm not sure about the geography. Yeah, You can bump up back there, number four, if you want. All right, let's take it to Luke 22, 31. Peter's fervent vow in the upper room. So you got your Holy Week. It's Thursday evening. They have celebrated the Passover. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, and they're about to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. 
Now remember, the object of our faith as Christians is Christ. But let's sharpen that. Christ as the Savior of sinners. Remember when Jesus was first called to be an apostle at the Sea of Galilee, the miraculous catch of fish, he falls down before Jesus, and what does he say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He was right, he was a sinful man, but he asks for the very thing that is the opposite of what he needed. Okay? So Jesus here says, I pray that your faith should not fail. Peter's faith is in Jesus as Savior of sinners. Now, Peter knew that. That's what the attraction was for Peter and his fellow disciples and those crowds and multitudes that thronged him. He's a Savior. In him I have forgiveness that I don't find anywhere else. And that's all true. And yet so easily we doubt that, especially when we are in the deep throes of guilt and a troubled conscience. So he said, I have prayed for you that your, your faith in him as Savior of sinners should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren in that faith that is not in self, but wholly in the grace of God in Christ. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now I ask often, was Peter sincere when he said that? Absolutely. With all his heart, he wanted to be true and faithful. But he did not have the strength. And actually, he needed to learn that he did not have the strength. That is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 16, take up your cross and follow me. That that nature must die in us so that we're stripped of any notion of self-reliance. And here's the thing. We can learn these things from the Word. But finally, in the end, the Word must be coupled with and interpret our life's experiences. Okay? So this is what Luther talked about, the making of a theologian. There's oratio, which is prayer. There's meditatio, meditation, upon the Word, study of the Word. But then also there is tentatio, the temptation, the suffering, the anfectum, which includes suffering with one's own weaknesses as well as persecution from outside of ourselves. Lord, I'm ready to go both with you both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And we know what happened. So some points on this. Satan's desire to destroy faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's his desire. That's his will. You know, so we're this week on my will be done. Satan's will, that's what his will is. Number two, Peter made a sincere vow to remain faithful to his Lord and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from Jesus. And that sounds an awful lot like the confirmation vow. Number three, Peter did not have the strength to be faithful to the vow he had made. Number four, that Peter received the Lord's forgiveness, grace, 
forgiving grace in the context of suffering with his own sin and spiritual weakness taught him total dependence upon Christ and the meaning of his vocation to give Christ's forgiving grace to others. Or that is bedrock foundation for Christian vocation. First, notice there's two prongs to it. The receiving of Christ's forgiveness. Total dependence upon him. Only then can we in our vocation give Christ's forgiving grace to others in the way in which we live. And that's why Jesus then says, number 5, verse 32, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. That returning is the returning in repentance to the Lord's forgiveness. Okay, let's see if we can take one more. Acts 10. Now, Luke was associated with the Apostle Paul, and Luke wrote not only the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, which, after Pentecost, focuses on Peter's ministry uh, briefly through the revelation uh, to the house of Cornelius uh, that the gospel was for the Gentile as well as the Jew. And then we quickly move into the Apostle Paul material. This chapter 10 is talking about um, how the Lord catechized Peter in the grace of God for Jew and Gentile alike in the four-footed sheet that comes down from heaven. Beth. Just a quick question. Um, <clears throat> with Satan wanting to sift Peter's wheat, I've often wondered if that's very similar to Job. Absolutely. It is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it is parallel to what happened to Job. And so understand then this mystery God knows what you're able to bear. And he will not allow you to be sifted like wheat or tempted beyond that which he himself has already given to you to bear it. To which I've had some Christians say, I hope I'm so pathetically weak that God, that God doesn't give me any of these trials and tribulations like Job had. Okay? And I understand that. Over, oh, okay, then, and then over here. Uh, back to uh, Luke 22, uh, 32. Uh, Jesus says, when you have returned to me, is Jesus saying in so many words to Peter that you are going to fail? Yes. And then when Peter responds... Does he know that Jesus told him that he was going to fail? Uh, yes, he, he, he does says? know. When he went out of the courtyard of the high priest, weeping bitter tears, it was after Peter looked at him, Luke says, and he remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Yep. So uh, contrition and repentance is always that which is uh, brought forth in us by the word of God, by the word and spirit of God. It happens in the context of life's experiences. Life's experiences can't bring us to faith, but they are the context in which the word and spirit of God work mightily in us. So that returning is the returning in repentance to Jesus and away from self. Beth. Yeah, I'm back to Beth Berenger's question about the sifting of wheat. And you said... Um, 
that God knows our strength or whatever kind of... And he, how, he knows the faith that he's given because he himself has given it. Okay, can you speak then to people who are tempted and drawn away from the faith of their baptism by those temptations? Uh, how do you explain it? Well, anytime anybody falls away, like in Peter here, whose fault was it that he denied his Lord? His fault. Whose credit is it that he returned? God's. This is part of the mystery of faith. We want, you know, instant answers to those questions, and we're called to live by faith and not by sight. And so that's something that the church needs to learn and that Christians need to learn. All we can do is do what God gave us to do in our vocation. If Steve falls away from Christ, I can proclaim the word to him. And if he doesn't hear, punching him, strangling him, isn't going to assist. Although that is our temptation, isn't it? And that would be the way of the flesh. So why do some fall away and seemingly never return and others do not? I know the fault is theirs and not God's. And I know God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Among other things, it ought to inspire great humility in us, teaching us to commend ourselves, our loved ones, and others to God in prayer for what he alone can, can produce. Okay? Um, I think you've got Eunice there, too. Oh, Eunice. Oh, I just want to quickly say that... Um, the same thing happened. Adam and Eve, they turned from the word. They turned from G turning your eyes off of Jesus and his word is where the fall begins. True enough. What should you do if you are really not sure that God has given you this work to do? This work to do. What is this work you're referring to? In that, be, be more specific? Yeah. Um, okay, well... Because you asked, how do you know that for, God is giving for, you this For about work? three years, I've known through the father of this girl that she was possessed by the devil, and they did an exorcism on her. I really don't know how well it's working. I've talked to her a number of times last year, but not recently. But now I think it might be a good time... She's, she's under therapy through the government and that, and it's not doing much good, I guess. She sits and cries all day because of a sin that she committed or sins Okay, yeah, let's, let's not get too specific, Eunice. I'm a little... Uh, let us not get too specific about that. When we talk, how do you know what God has given us to do? It's according to your station in life. What is your station, you know? You are a Christian woman. So what does the Bible say a Christian woman ought to do? Ought to believe, and how should the Christian woman operate? And you are not a pastor. Uh, you're a Christ Christian woman. So everything that God says and calls you to be and to do as a woman, that's what you are to do. Um, there are warnings against meddling in the affairs of other people and so forth in the apostolic witness. 
If you're a husband, you have things that the Word of God calls you to do toward your wife as the man who is in the place of Christ. If you're a woman, there is a submission to the husband to which you are called to. That's what I mean about how do you know. You don't, you know, I prayed about it and then I thought this is what I should do. No, you get, you get what you should do from God's word. Okay. All right. Let, let me um, take you into Acts chapter 10 here. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he had observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean to the south of, of Caesarea, and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with another Simon, Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He, this Simon Peter, will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who, visited on, who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, so you've got the men from Cornelius. He's a centurion, so he's a, uh, uh, a Roman, a Gentile. He commands 100 troops. He sends these servants now down south to Joppa. So on this next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city of Joppa, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, which is in this time frame about 12 noon. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready the lunch, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals on the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. Now, all of those animals in this sheet that was lowered were, according to Old Testament ceremonial law, unclean. So, as unclean, profane animals, they were not to eat of those. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So you see the apparent contradiction from what the Old Testament had taught. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, or literally declared clean, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. 
Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Hey, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore... Now listen carefully. Go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So the vision of Cornelius to send for Peter and Peter's vision at noontime on the roof of this home corroborate each other. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? Now listen to the message that they bore from Cornelius. Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Now notice carefully again. You're to come to Cornelius' house, and he summoned you to hear words from you. I think Peter had attention deficit disorder because earlier Jesus told him plainly what must happen, and it's as if he didn't hear, wasn't paying attention. Now the message from Cornelius' house, come and speak words to us. Then he invited them in and lodged them, which is a radical thing because they were Gentiles and he was a Jew. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So you got these Jewish servants of Cornelius, or these Gentile servants from Cornelius uh, who are journeying back to Caesarea with Peter and some Jewish brethren who were with him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and his friends. What a great deal. I mean, he had assembled an entire congregation of Gentiles from his friends and from his family and acquaintances. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. But surely he fell down and worshipped Peter because the Lord had told him he will bring you words of life. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he, that is Simon Peter, said to him, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. Now, unlawful according to the Old Testament scriptures. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean that the Lord has called clean. A direct reference to the vision that Peter had received. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I ask then, for what reason have you sent for me? Here again, it's the reason I said I think he's got attention deficit disorder. He just said... He wants you to come and speak words to him, to preach. Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting 
until this hour, and at the ninth hour, coincidentally, three o'clock in the afternoon when our Lord died, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Now, Cornelius' prayer was, I submit to you, a prayer of faith. Though he was a Gentile, he had come by the grace of God to believe that the seed of Abraham was the Messiah for all nations. It's why he gave alms to the support of the synagogue and was kindly to the Jews there. In that, you already see the idea of Christian vocation coming out of Cornelius, this Gentile. Numerous times, Gentiles would have experienced the off-putting, nasty treatment at the hands of self-righteous Jews, and yet, Cornelius, this Gentile, with a bit of fledgling faith in him, dares to offer alms in support of the Jews and their synagogue there, and he abides in mercy toward them and, and uh, compassion. So verse 32, he's still reporting his vision. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. Notice how the two visions substantiate each other. So the Old Testament, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, all things are established. So I sent you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before you to hear all the things commanded you by God. Think of all of those things that Jesus had commanded the apostles to preach. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him a reference to faith, and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we, the apostle guys, are witnesses of all these things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Now this is a powerful section of Acts. Because in it, notice when Peter finally opened up his mouth to preach, he preached what's called the kerygma, the substantial foundational doctrine of the death and resurrection of the Son of God according to the Scriptures. He further asserts that Cornelius knew about these things, which gives evidence to the fact that not only had the word of God already been spreading about 
who Jesus was and what he had done. But Cornelius, as a devout man who was believing the prophets proclaimed in the synagogue, uh, saw in Jesus the very things that Peter proclaimed in this, in this kerygma of death, resurrection, uh, and forgiveness of sins for all nations. And that gives rise to these three points that I make here. Number one, even though Peter had been with the Lord for three years and witnessed his forgiving grace to Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, he was still slow to understand his calling to proclaim the forgiving grace of Christ to the Gentiles. I think that's extremely instructive for the church because the church of various times and places finds herself in a similar situation. Number two, God shows no partiality, verse 34. That is a description of God's grace for all nations. It's already embedded in the promise made to Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And number three, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins is not only the end of verse 43, but the promise to people of all nations, all ethnic groups, and there's no distinction. It's a dramatic thing here in Acts 10 that in spite of what they had witnessed with Peter, with Jesus in his ministry, how it seemed as if the Jewish apostles had to be dragged into seeing that this gospel truly was for all nations. It's after this, then, that the ministry of the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles is able to soon take off. All right, we'll pick it up here next time with um, uh, Peter's epistle and uh, bring about a conclusion to this particular section, even as we take it into the table of duties. Okay. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.